0: studied the form of comics intimately.
1: What you need is a hobby. With words and pictures,
2: it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about?
0: I don't know. It's pretty
3: goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We
2: have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient
0: way of passing on
2: history. You can put on a uniform for football year round nobody cares basketball year round nobody cares put on a star trek uniform people get a case of the
0: giggles yeah hi somebody told me they make comic books here oh. that's
1: from superman it's smallville
0: you have been trying that jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade it doesn't work oh it works you guys
1: must read too many comic books or something
4: people do not masturbate in the dc universe
0: that was the
1: biggest load of crap i've ever heard
3: Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, based on the stuff that I've recorded lately, and forget about what I may have released lately, because for those of you who are familiar with the way that I do this show... The order in which I release episodes is nothing at all like the order in which these things are actually recorded, right? But based on everything that I've recorded lately, one would almost want to be would almost want to think that I'm stuck in the 90s. Now, I know a lot of comics fans, some of whom or at least a couple of whom are stuck in the 60s, Uh, Quite a few are stuck in the 70s. Tons are stuck in the 80s. And I've noticed, at least among people my age and a little bit younger and maybe a little bit older, a lot of us, whether we seem to realize it or not, we're all stuck in the 90s. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, so in reference to that, it needs to be said that today, today's comics... What do you want to bet these are from the 90s, guys? Yeah, that's what I thought. Specifically, what I'm going to be talking about is a storyline from Legends of the Dark Knight. Now, this story is called Criminals and was originally published in two parts in Legends of the Dark Knight number 69 and Legends of the Dark Knight number 70. And just to kind of set the scene here a little bit. I didn't, I did not literally buy these comics off the rack, because as I understand it, that is supposed to be sort of a literal explanation of how one goes about getting comics, and that is not how I got these comics, no, no. The way that I got these comics, for those of you who have, I don't know, at least no room in your memories for kind of trivial things like how Trent got his comics at this time in the 90s. I had a subscription to Legends of the Dark Knight during this time, and this was, these two issues, I think they marked about the halfway point of my subscription, because I'm going off memory here, but the way that it goes in my mind is my subscription to Legends of the Dark Knight actually began with Legends of the Dark Knight issue number 65, and then went right on through to number 76. That would have been 12 issues, right? So, and generally speaking, those subscriptions, I think you could get them in one, two or three year increments. And I got just the one year increment. And I ultimately decided not to renew for reasons that go far outside of the scope of this podcast. But suffice it to say, the reason that I ever wanted a subscription in the first place, as I've said in previous episodes, is because of the fact that when you're 14 years old and you have limited money, no driver's license, no car, and really no way to get like a real job, it, it getting to the LCS on a reliable and uh, consistent basis, well, this can be challenging, one might say. And so subscriptions were a kind of convenient way to work around that. So, there you go. Now, in a weird kind of way, I've got very fond memories of this subscription, and guys, I have to be honest with you, the subscriptions that you could get from DC Comics directly, which is where I got mine, these subscriptions kind of suck because of the fact that I think these came out the month after, or rather two months after the cover date. So it's, it was just bad. Hold on, let me rephrase that. These comics typically arrived one month after they arrived on newsstands, right? So that was a very inconvenient way to get one's hands on, on comics, right? And what I eventually came to realize is that comics that kind of have not so much an expiration date, but kind of a deadline to them, or, an, or at least an urgency to them, you know, things like the Superman titles, you know, you really don't want a chance getting a, uh, getting a subscription to those just because of the fact that the slowness of the delivery times kind of makes it a little bit of a pain in the ass Uh, to keep on top of all of these stories and stuff. But for things that take place outside of continuity, things that have no real bearing on continuity, well, this is a little bit more manageable. So that was really the allure behind getting a subscription to Legends of the Dark Knight. This was a comic that I wanted to get, but I didn't need to get necessarily on the day that it came out. Does that make sense? So, that is actually going to become a little bit of a, that's going to become a little bit of an issue, I suppose, uh, as we move further along in this story, but I'll come back to that in a little bit, just because of the fact that it relates a little bit more to my personal life, as opposed to this specific comic. But, you know, it's just, I find that the comics that I was collecting when I was about 12, 13, 14 years old and through there, they're sort of inseparable from... They're more than just comics, I I guess. It's not just a story. Now there's like a sentimental value to it to where it's it's bigger than just what happens on the page because what's happening in your life is... It's as directly tied in with these comics as anything else, you know. So, all of this is a long way of saying this is Legends of the Dark Knight number sixty-nine. Cover date is March nineteen ninety-five. On sale date is January thirty-first nineteen ninety-five. Uh, cover price is a buck ninety-five, which even in nineteen ninety-five, guys, that was a little bit of a steep cost. Uh, for a comic book. I mean, it was starting to become more and more the norm, but it wasn't, it wasn't as, uh, that, that price point was not yet as consistent across the board as it would be later on. So anyway, title is criminals part one. So the storyline at large is called criminals. The title of the first part is criminals. Part one editor is Archie Goodwin writer is Stephen Grant Artist is Mike Zeck. Letterer is Willie Schubert, because that's the way I've decided I'm going to pronounce it. Colorist is Laverne Kinzierski. I guess is how that's supposed to be pronounced. Story synopsis is as follows. Batman interrupts a robbery at a factory. Vince, one of the crooks, nearly manages to get the drop on Batman, but Crown, the bookkeeper of the group, ruins Vince's shot on Batman. Batman recovers and then takes down the entire group going easy on crown because crown isn't really putting up any kind of resistance. Elsewhere, savage crimes are being committed across Gotham city. After some investigation, Batman and Gordon realize that the prime suspects are men who are already on death row. One, one such sub, uh, suspect was supposed to have been executed years ago. Later, Batman does a flyover of Blackgate Prison and gets shot at by the guards for his troubles. Unable to make headway any other way, Gordon contacts Warden Chessler, the administrator of Blackgate Prison, and arranges for Batman, disguised as Detective Stone, to go undercover in the prison as an inmate. There can't be any accommodation or special treatment allowed. Batman has to be treated the same as every other prisoner. As all that's going on, Vince swings by Crown's cell and makes it clear that he, meaning Crown, is living on borrowed time. In short order, Stone uncovers a conspiracy involving murderous prisoners and corrupt guards. He realizes that whatever's happening in Blackgate is a lot bigger than he originally thought. Another prisoner moves to kill Crown in the prison workshop because of Crown's effort to save Batman earlier in this issue. Stone intervenes but gets harassed by a guard who tells him to mind his own business. Stone knocks the guard out with one punch. One punch. And then beats the shit out of Crown's would-be attacker. After which, he himself gets knocked the fuck out by prison guards and sent off to solitary confinement. As retribution... Vince and some other prisoners invade his cell in solitary confinement, but Stone fights his way out and makes his way to the roof where he, where he's stashed his Batman gear earlier during his flyover uh, of the prison from much earlier in this story. Batman emerges from the shadows as Blackgate Prison descends into chaos. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well... I guess from the outset, it kind of needs to be said that not very long before Legends of the Dark Knight number 69 came out, there was, a, there was an issue of Shadow of the Bat from the Prodigal storyline where Batman, who at that time was Dick Grayson, but Dick Grayson as Batman basically kind of half-ass invaded a prison, uh, uh, a, a prison riot and basically managed to put the whole thing down single-handedly, right? Using Batman's reputation. And, it I mean, it was, it, it was different, I guess in terms of the particulars, but basically what we're dealing with here is Batman going to a prison and kicking the shit out of people, right? And I guess in terms of the big picture similarity, uh, that's what was going on. Right. So as all of that was happening, it wasn't very long before this. I mean, I didn't bother to, you know, keep track or anything like that, like keep a detailed journal of of, or anything. But it wasn't very long before even that issue of Shadow of the Bat that I that I saw the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. And. There was something about that movie. I mean, guys, if, you, if you've if you seen the movie and you're a fan of it, you, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain movies that you enjoy, but for some reason, it, it, it's hard to put into In fact, it, if anything, it probably defies words because you just enjoy it, but you're not really able to say why, you know? And The Shawshank Redemption is kind of one of those things where I enjoy that movie, but articulating it, this is beyond me, right? But basically, for some reason, I—I I think it would be fair to say that I was kind of going through a phase at the time that Legends of the Dark Knight number sixty-nine came out. I was going through this phase where I liked uh, stories that were set, or at least had something to do with prison, you know, and. I guess a psychologist could look at what was happening in my personal life at that time and draw some interesting conclusions. But in any case, for some reason, there's something about those stories that kind of, I don't know why, but they just held a lot of interest to me, you know? And so you had that issue of Shadow of the Bat from the Prodigal storyline, like I was saying, where Dick Grayson as Batman basically puts down a prison riot all by himself. And then here you've got Batman... Uh, infiltrating Blackgate prison, and for at least a little while, he's kind of having to live life in prison, you know? And this kind of got my mind to turning, you know? Like, this idea of Batman in prison, undercover of some kind, I thought that, you know, as good as this story is, I mean, it's like Stephen Grant, it's like he runs with that for a couple of pages and then it just sort of gets abandoned, you know? And I can't help, you know, thinking that, you know, this story might overall have worked better as a three-parter where you could have had an uh, an entire issue of Batman living life in prison. But maybe, you know, maybe Stephen Grant just didn't want to spend that much time with it. Maybe he just, he said what he had to say about, you know, the the chaos and uh, the sort of hellish environment that is prison. And then he just sort of, you know, once he got it out of his system, he just moved right along. But it kind of got me to thinking, you know, there is a, I, I remember thinking at the time that there was a ton of dramatic mojo to the idea of Batman undercover being locked up in prison. So, for those of you who are familiar with this story, what do you want to bet that I really enjoyed those issues of Bruce Wayne murderer? Anyway, so I like I say, it, it it kind of defies rational analysis, I suppose, but that's that was sort of my, I guess, my gateway into this story, you know? Does that make sense? That was I guess how I how I got into it. And I guess just to kind of take it from, take it from the top here, the cover for Legends of the Dark Knight, number 69, I've always just kind of liked this image. I mean, first off, I'm, I'm not the world's biggest uh, Mike Zek fan. I like his work, but I've never been as fixated on Zek as some other people are. I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I'm just saying it's fucking, it's true, you know? But this cover for Legends of the Dark Knight, number 69, you've basically got Batman lurking around what I assume is that, that factory from the beginning of the story. And you could almost view this as sort of like the unofficial page one of the story. Like this is the establishing shot of Batman lurking around, you know, in the factory. And then on the actual page one, that's where the story begins, and, you know, it's it looks like it's the exact same fucking factory. And I just, I kind of like this. You know, this is a, you don't see this, on, you know, with covers very often, where they're sort of like page one for the story, or page zero, I guess, of the story. But when it's done well, it's it, it just works so amazingly well. I like it. So... I've always interpreted the cover of Legends of the Dark Knight number 69 as kind of the unofficial first page of this story. And basically what we're seeing is Batman getting into position so that he can take down the criminals that are, that are robbing this factory here. So that just works for me. As to the actual page one, it's basically a, an, an establishing shot inside of the factory of the criminals working their way to the payroll office. And there's really nothing special about it, and this again actually kind of plays into my idea of this is uh, of the cover as the actual first page of the story because there's not a silhouette or a shadow or anything like that that indicates Batman's lurking around nearby, but you know that he is right just because of what happens on the next couple of pages, and so if you think of it that what we're seeing on the cover is actually like the first page of the story. It actually works a little bit better because it's almost like we're getting, like, this this view of the criminals moving to the payroll office, the gang moving to the payroll office. And it's almost like it's from Batman's point of view, in a way. So, like I say, I just, I like it. It's, it's a cool effect, and it works for me. And one of the things that really comes out with all of... Uh, all of the narration that's going on here is basically it kind of plays into the idea this, and you guys have probably read it in zillions of Batman comics, you know, criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot, you know, and you've read that a thousand times, but how often do you really see that in these stories? Right? Well, that's a major element of this story uh, and that comes across in the caption, which is actually, I guess this is uh, third person captioning, um, ba- or maybe, or I don't know, depending on how you look at it, it could actually be second person too. You kind of have to squint a little bit, but it could be either second person or third person. But basically the caption says the following, there's a rule in Gotham's underworld, avoid his name. Do not invoke the devil. Call the devil, and the devil will answer. And that is what we see again and again and again in both of these issues, where people are afraid to even speak the Batman's name, because what that that could end up doing is actually summoning the Batman. And it actually plays out more often in this story than you might think. And I'll deal with these on sort of like an instance-by-instance basis as we work through it. But it needs to be said up front that what we're seeing here is somewhat of a microcosm of the Gotham City underworld, where these people are so fucking scared out of their minds of Batman that so many of them are just fundamentally unwilling to say his name because if they do well criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot and it kind of works on you know on that level and you know guys you need to understand i read this when i was 14 years old and i was still formulating i guess my understanding of who batman is and what he's all about and so when you I guess when you're kind of at that kind of sensitive juncture in your development, where, as your influences, because these were definitely my influences when it when it comes to Batman, you know, on the uh, on one extreme, you know, you had stuff like uh, uh, Dick Sprang and uh, Carmine Infantino and whatnot that were kind of showing you a little bit more of a shiny, shinier, happier Batman, in one sense, and then on the other extreme, what you had was like that early, early onset of Detective Comics, you know, basically the first year or so of Detective Comics with uh, Bob Kane, Bill Finger, Gardner Fox, and those types. Then you had Frank Miller, Denny O'Neill with Neil Adams, Alan Grant, and Norm Brayfogle, and all these other guys that were definitely bringing, uh, you know, an overall darker Batman uh, to the table, even if their respective Bat-men were yet different from one another in their particulars you know and so what exactly this this means for you know me as a as a comics fan was that i had so many influences uh, with batman that there was no single definitive version and so what you're kind of left with when you're faced with kind of this mosaic of different interpretations of batman is basically to kind of formulate what you think is important with Batman. And one of the things that's important with me when it comes to Batman, probably as a result of this storyline, is not just Batman as crime fighter or Batman as dark avenger of the night or any of that kind of stuff, but as much as anything, Batman as a figure of myth, as a figure of superstition in Gotham City, where... Anybody with an even vaguely guilty conscience is pissing his pants over the prospect of what might happen if somebody speaks this guy's name out loud and what might happen if they do. Because rationally, they want to believe that he's just a man in one sense, because they are they are humans and humans are kind of rational as people. But on the other hand, you know, criminals really are a superstitious and cowardly lot. You know, I mean, I've met my share of lawbreakers over the years and there's not a one of them that doesn't do just weird superstitious shit. You know, I don't rub elbows with criminals on a reg uh, on a regular basis, don't get me wrong. I just I've met scumbags over the years and you know, guys, yes, what what you see in these comics is in one sense it's definitely a caricature there's a lot more truth to it than than you may know. Anyway, my point though is to say that I find it actually very easy to believe that someone like Batman would put the fear of God or perhaps the fear of the devil into these people precisely because of the fact that Because of the fact that they're superstitious. Because of the fact that, let's face it, they may not be all that smart. Because of the fact that Batman is so effective at what he does with his disguise, with his methods, with his theatricality, that he might act. uh, It's reasonable to think that he might actually be capable of inducing so much cognitive dissonance where. Like I say, these people rationally have to believe, on the one hand, that Batman is just some asshole in a mask. But on the other hand, they do have good reason to believe that maybe he's something other than human, you know? And that kind of push and pull, that the, the cognitive dissonance of it all, you know, the superstition... It plays into what makes Batman so effective at what he does. I mean, yeah, there's the fact that he's damn good at what he does, just on a technical level. He's a good detective. He's a good fighter, you know, and things like that. But the greatest weapon in his arsenal isn't his intellect. It's not his martial arts skills. It's not his athletic ability. It's not his in with the police or anything like that. It's actually his costume. That is sort of the cherry on top that makes him as effective as he is. And that is illustrated, so to speak, again and again and again all through this story. So anyway, moving on to uh, page two here, or or actually, sorry, it's not page two. Moving on to page four, what we see is this uh, splash page. It's It's a glory shot of Batman swooping into action off of... It looks like he's up in the rafters. He's swooping uh, swooping into action down onto uh, the, the gang of criminals. And you just know that all hell is about to break loose. And sure enough, on page five, all hell truly does break loose. And, you know, Batman is just beating the stuffings out of these guys. And Vince, the, the leader of the group, it's kind of weird how... His reactions contrast with Crown, the kind of weak-willed bookkeeper, because Crown immediately hits the deck, screaming over and over again, I give up, I give up, I give up, I give up. He does, I mean, he doesn't want a piece of Batman, that's for damn sure. Vince, on the other hand, again, he has an intellectual certainty that Batman is just a man, in one sense. But on the other hand, Batman is, he's doing these things that people should not be, at least theoretically, they should not be capable of doing. And so the superficial evidence that Vince is looking at defies what he has to believe in his own mind. You know, what he believes is that Batman is just a man. What he's seeing is evidence that Batman is not just a man, and therein is the cognitive dissonance. Therein is the superstition. Therein is Batman's most potent weapon as a figure of myth inside the DC universe where the criminals don't know what the fuck they're dealing with here. And that's why it works. Anyway, so Vince is just firing off his gun again and again and again. Stop it. Don't let him spook you. He's a man. He's got to be. And then what Vince decides is, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just going to knock the hostage off of the catwalk and let uh, Mr. Hero guy take care of, uh, uh, just basically let him take care of it. And so this allows Vince for the moment to get the drop on Batman. And this may actually have been the end of it. I mean, this may have been the moment that Batman dies, except for, you know, Crown, who is fundamentally unwilling to go down for murder or attempted murder or anything like that, he doesn't mind grand theft. He doesn't mind being caught, tried, and convicted of grand theft. But whether it's just fear of being caught or moral problems with murder, Crown isn't willing to let Vince take a cheap shot on Batman. So he basically uh, pushes his hand right as he fires off his gun and ruins uh, Vince's shot. So that, he basically buys Batman enough time to escape and then get the drop on Vince. And then there's this kind of neat little moment here on page eight where Batman confronts Crown and, and says, Why did you save my life? And Crown is so scared out of his mind of Batman that he can't even really answer. So Batman basically says, stay here until the police come. And Crown is so afraid at this point that he does it. And again, it speaks to the superstitious nature of criminals that all Batman has to do is tell Crown what to do, and then Crown's going to do it because he's that fucking scared. You know, fear is a powerful motivator, put it that way. So anyway, so from there on pages, on the rest of page eight, going into page nine, and then heading on from there, we see uh, a, a crime scene where basically somebody broke into a judge's Uh, not a judge's house, I'm sorry, college professor's house, killed the guy. And there's no apparent motive. There's no apparent uh, suspect. None of this makes any sense. They do, Batman and Gordon do end up finding an eyewitness, a small child, but the kid identifies somebody who's on death row. This guy, a thug by the name of Lou Jack, he's on death fucking row. So how is it possible that a guy who's allegedly in prison is somehow responsible for a murder on the outside. Therein is the question. So from there, uh, Batman decides to get answers. That's page twelve. Page thirteen is when Batman does his sort of aerial recon of Blackgate Prison. And guys, I just got to say, this there's this moment. This uh, this is page thirteen, the first panel you get. It's kind of a thumbnail of Blackgate Prison. It doesn't have as much detail on it as I would have liked. I would have liked it if, if, and I'm not trying to critique Mike Zek or criticize him or bash on him or anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, as a fan, I would have liked a like an overall larger illustration of Blackgate prison. Because when you think about it, I mean, we've all seen Arkham Asylum out the wazoo. But how often do you really get all that good a look at Blackgate, you know? And... It would have been kind of, I don't know, it just would have scratched the fanboy itch to get, you know, uh, I guess to put it in modern parlance, a higher resolution image of Blackgate prison. Would have, should have, could have. Point is, it's just, it's really neat, you know, with the clouds overhead and, you know, it's on an island and you can see the searchlights and all of these walls and stuff. It just looks fucking cool. You know, Blackgate prison. And... Ugh, just like it, it's it's cool. I wish it could have be. I wish it could be bigger. Again, not trying to criticize. Just saying. So that's page uh, thirteen, the first panel. The fourth panel has this kind of glory shot of Batman uh, swinging by in a hang a, a bat motifed hang glider. He's swinging by overhead, and basically trying to do aerial recon of of the prison. And again, we get some kind of interesting internal monologue here. Inside, convicts sweat fear with each wasted thundering shot, meaning of these these guns that the guards are firing off. Doom, never far from them, brushes past a taunting kiss of terror. He savors the stench of fear. Fear makes his work easier. Fear is his handmaiden one of his only friends. And yeah, it's a little flowery, I suppose. You know, I mean, there are instances where some of this narration, it goes a little far. But on the other hand, you know, if you think of this as kind of a sort of stylized, kind of heightened reality, Gotham City is a place where the sun never really comes out all the way, and the shadows are never very far away, or I don't know, it's just, It kind of adds to the sort of noir-y, pulpy type of tone that this story is going for. And I think that's one of the reasons why I at least am willing to overlook it. But I think one of the dividends going on here is that I've always kind of seen a little bit of a similarity between Mike Zek's work here in these two issues to David Masicelli's work on Batman Year One. I'm not saying that one is a direct copy of the other. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that there are stylistic similarities. And, you know, Batman Year One, you know, it's a good story. It's fun. I think it's a little overrated at times, but whatever. The point is, there aren't very many comics out there that look like Year One. I mean, love it or hate it. It's got a unique visual identity in the marketplace. And the, the, the type of art that we see here, it's like it's, it's in that same vocabulary. I don't mean that it's a ripoff, because if I did, I would fucking say so. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there are some similarities here and there. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm able to invest myself in it, you know. So then again, I could be totally wrong here. So after that we get into this is um page 14. Gordon makes contact with Warden uh Warden Chesler and then on page 14 introduces Warden Chesler to Detective Stone and basically says that hey this guy is going undercover in the prison, you know? The prison has been implicated in this shit that you know whatever's happening on the outside, we need answers. And so after that begins what is kind of the franchise at least of this particular issue of Batman undercover in the prison and one of the things that kind of works for me here is Batman basically is trying to figure out the way that things work in prison you know he's trying to play by the rules and learn the ropes you know and I kind of I can't help but think that a lesser writer than Stephen Grant would be Portray Batman as being sort of like this all-powerful, imposing badass who enforces his will upon the entire prison population. And that's not what we see here. We see a we we see Batman, he's playing it safe. He's never very far away from the guards at any given time. He's always within their eyesight. He's constantly watching for other prisoners to make a move against him and all of these other things. I mean, he's really keyed up, and he's playing things very cautiously, you know? And again, you know, if a different and probably lesser writer than Stephen Grant was handling this, I don't think this degree of care and sensitivity would necessarily be put into uh, uh, Batman's methods and actions inside the prison. You know, he would instantly try to assert himself as this kind of action movie hero cliche you know and that's not what we see here at all he's almost passive in the way that he handles stuff right up until fate in a sense kind of forces him into action and he has to save a prisoner from being shanked and then come to find out it's crown the self-same guy who saved his ass earlier in the story so there's a degree to which You know, he and Batman are kind of even now, whether Crown knows it or not. Yet. And so, after that, the guards pounce on Batman. Because let's face it, he just knocked a guard out with a a, a wrench. And the other guards aren't going to just take that lying down. So, sure enough, they get the drop on Batman. Or they get the drop on Stone, at least. Knock his ass out and then lock his ass up inside of solitary confinement. Where he comes to just in time for Vince and his gang to do God knows what uh, uh, to stone. So you're well within your rights to question, is a beating all they really had in mind here? I mean, guys, let's face it, this is a maximum security prison. We all know what happens inside those prisons. And it, you know, I must say that angle never really becomes prevalent in this story. In fact, a lot of realities of prison are never really present in the story. But that one, for sure, is never actually mentioned in the story. But you kind of have to wonder, you know, when you, uh, you know, when you reread this with kind of a crucial, uh, not a crucial eye, critical eye, is Stephen Grant kind of talking around the rape culture of prison? It just kind of makes you wonder in a few pages, you know? So, especially goings-on with Crown that happened in the next issue. Yeah, just taking a sip off of my sun-kissed here. Anyway. So, Batman, I guess, has no intention of submitting to whatever it is that these guys have in mind. Beats the shit out of him. Fights his way to freedom. Even fights his way past a guard. And at this point, he's pretty well realized that, hey, the guards are in on this. And so, you know, he's got no choice but to, shall we say, adopt a different approach. And again, the narration here, it's almost but not quite over the top. It says, reflex, violence simmers everywhere. Criminals, hundreds of them, one of him. The stench of fear stings his nostrils, but not his fear, theirs, cowards, playing a coward's game, paralyzed by the broken rules, playing the game for a mirage of control, cowering behind it to ward off the inevitable darkness. Darkness is a game he can play. In his nose is the stench of fear, in his ears ring the silent mantras of terror, Fear is his handmaiden. Fear is a game he can play. And, again, it's almost, but not quite, over the top. But it does kind of, I don't know, it's like there's a truth to it, if not necessarily a reality, you know? So, it's all in how you look at it. So, from there, Stone makes his way to the roof. He finds his bag with his Batman gear stashed inside puts it on and again we get some more we get some more internal monologue here it says he knows the prison he knows it better than them this hell they're doomed to criminals their lives a desperate cycle of trespass and punishment the mantra of the damned his ears ring with silent mantras drumming from the cells The liturgy of terror, loner, the game, darkness. Why? Batman, Batman, Batman. And again, it just kind of speaks to the, I guess, the superstitious uh, beliefs, I guess, or attitudes of, of criminals. And guys, like I say, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, a lot of them are are paranoid as all fuck. Now, to kind of give you the other side, I mean, you know, I know that prison is a kind of pressure cooker environment. I know somebody who used to be a, a parole officer. And this is a guy who has rubbed elbows, I'm not kidding, guys, with fucking murderers. And he said that, you know, the thing about a lot of murderers is that a lot of murders are, in a sense, crimes of passion, or they're crimes of, uh, of a grudge, or something like that. I mean, guys, let's face it. Taking human life is a pretty fucking extreme thing to do, and that's not a decision that most people choose to make. So the people who do choose to make it, in a great many cases, hatred figures into it in a big bad way but here's the thing and keep in mind guys i'm not advocating anything here i'm just saying that this is the this is the mindset that a lot of murderers have where they killed somebody they got sent to prison and then they got out of prison and a lot of them tend to be rather laid back the world is a better place now there was somebody out there that they fucking hated So they took care of it and now the world is better off for it, right? Their lives are certainly better off for it and they don't think of it in terms of the fact that, dude, you fucking killed somebody. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter what your reasons were unless it was self-defense. You fucking killed somebody and that isn't good, you know? But the way that they think of it is, hey, I did society a favor. I certainly did myself a favor. That asshole is gone. And they tend to be kind of I don't want to say happy, but they tend to be kind of, you know, laid back about it. You know, I mean, the world's kind of a better place. They solved their problem. And so they're okay now, you know, they took care of it. And I'm not trying to make light of their crime. Don't get, you know, don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that's the way that a lot of them look at it. You know, that's how little human life means to a lot of them. But on the other hand, you know, they are some of the most superstitious, motherfuckers you're ever gonna hope to meet you know and in fact i hope i hope you guys listening this never meet any murderers but that's the way that a lot of well i say i say a lot of them that's the way that at least a bunch of them seem to think you know that hey yeah they killed somebody but you know what damn it the world's a better place now because of what they did you know and it's it's fucked up it's sick so anyway my point is to say that the internal monologue that we're seeing here it adds up to me, you know? I I find I mean, like I say, I see truth if not necessarily reality to a lot of this stuff. You know, yes, it's 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 fiction and very stylized fiction, but there is there is a truth to it even if not literal fact. I hope that makes sense because I'm not sure if I'm doing such a good job of explaining that aspect of it, but uh Anyway, I think that's basically it for this issue. So, moving right along, Legends of the Dark Knight number 70. Cover date is April 1995, on sale date February 28th, 1995. Cover price is a buck 95. Title is Criminals Part 2. Editor is Archie Goodwin, writer is Stephen Grant, artist is Mike Zeck. Letterer is Willie Schubert. Colorist is Laverne Kinzierski. Story synopsis is as follows. His undercover investigation totally derailed. Batman has no choice but to continue his investigation now as Batman. This gets complicated when the warden arrives at the prison and swiftly gets captured by the other prisoners. Using the warden's life as their bargaining chip, They force Batman to allow himself to be unmasked, revealing the face of... Detective Stone. The warden's shocked by the revelation that Batman is apparently a cop, but this idea seems to make sense to the other prisoners. Meanwhile, as all this is going on, Gordon's life is in danger outside the prison as he narrowly escapes a would-be attacker's bullets. Oddly enough, the attacker knew that Stone that Detective Stone is undercover inside Blackgate Prison. Curiouser and curiouser. In the middle of the chaos in the prison, Crown grabs a guard's gun and is prepared to blow Vince into the next life. Batman tries to talk him out of it, after which Crown spins around and fires a shot right over Batman's shoulder, nailing Warden Chesler in his own shoulder. The warden, you see, was about to shoot Batman himself, and it comes out that Chesler was getting paid ridiculous amounts of money to secretly release death row inmates to commit targeted assassinations. It's the perfect cover because first, death row inmates are already murderers to begin with, and second, most people would never suspect those specific perps because just how the hell could a death row inmate possibly have done this? Chessler tries to negotiate leniency with Gordon, who's arrived on the scene with backup. Let him, meaning Chessler, let him go, or else he'll reveal to the whole world that Batman is in fact Detective Stone of the GCPD. Gordon cuffs Chessler and tells him, there is no Detective Stone of the GCPD. The end. So, what did I think? Well... For starters, the the cover of this issue. It's it does it's not literally. Well, I'm just gonna put it, just put it out there. The this cover is not the first page of this issue. Like it, like the cover was of, uh, Legends of the Dark Knight number sixty nine. This is not the unofficial first page of the issue. This is more of I guess it's kind of an impressionistic cover. or Not impressionistic. It's more, I guess, suggestive of what this story could be about, or at least what the stakes of this story might be. But this doesn't actually happen in the story. But specifically what we're seeing is Jack, the guy who killed the college professor from Legends of the Dark Knight number 69. We see him strangling Batman with a chain... While the other prisoner, uh, prisoners and inmates are all watching and cheering him on, and like I say, this never literally happens in the story. On the one hand, but there there is a conflict between Lou Jack and Batman at one point, so put a pencil to it. Anyway, so beginning on page one, what we're seeing is. Blackgate basically descending into chaos, and everybody knows that shit is about to go down, but no one seems to know what to do about it just because what's happening here is so far outside of everybody's experience and expertise that, you know, who the hell would possibly know how to handle this? Because, you know, it's not like there's a rule manual in the inmates' handbook on what to do if Batman ever invades the prison you know so there you have it but there is a moment and this is on page two there is a moment at the bottom of page two where vince and a and and a big gang of prisoners and also one guard they basically fan out and try and they're trying to figure out just what the fact what's going on here and so one of them says I, and I think it's it's unclear, but I think what we can, I, I think what we're supposed to assume is that it's Vince that's talking here when he says, "Hell, this is prison. Where can he, meaning, meaning Stone, where can he go? What do you think he'll do? Just vanish? He's a punk. He's not Batman." And then one of the other inmates replies with, "Why are you saying that name? It's a jinx," and Vince. Barely even acknowledges it. He says, "Spread out, check everywhere, and don't talk superstitious, Benny." Makes people think you're stupid. He says that right as Batman walks around a corner. I mean, on the one hand, like I say, the, the these criminals are kind of rational, in, in, you know, in that as as people we are sort of rational beings, in one sense. But on the other sense, these guys have specifically chosen an an occupation and a profession that kind of lends itself to superstition. And so there's this weird, fucked-up cognitive dissonance that goes on, this kind of push-and-pull that happens where their rationality is constantly at war with their irrationality. And it's best personified here with... Vince, probably the most rational person that we meet in this story, or at least the most rational prisoner, on the one hand, constantly living in defiance of everybody else's superstition and constantly facing what looks like compelling evidence that, you know what, maybe there is something to all of this superstitious bullshit in the first place. Because like I say, he no sooner says, guys, that's fucking bullshit, you can say the name, there's nothing wrong with that, and then Batman shows up, and that's not the first time that something like this has happened, to Vince. Now, is it? So anyway, Batman swoops in there, and then the fight's on. Uh, he takes out the guy that's holding the flashlight, knocks him all the way across the room, and then makes his escape. He kidnaps one of the uh, he kidnaps the guard that they've got with him, and uses his uniform as a disguise. And there's this kind of neat little moment here on page five where he says, look, I'm the only one that knows where you are. Nobody knows about this place except me. If anything happens to me, nobody's going to know about you. So if I'm walking into a trap, say so. Blink hard, because he's got him gagged. And the guy doesn't blink. So basically, this allows Batman to, using the disguise, the, the the guard's uniform as a disguise basically allows Batman access to other parts of the prison and it doesn't really last all that long uh, people start seeing perhaps not that it's Batman in this guard's disguise they see that it's Stone wearing this this guard's uniform as a disguise and so that actually again plays into the deception that Batman uses as it's part of his stock and trade at this point. And on page eight, he what we see is he's basically brought down an entire room of serious thugs all by himself. Now, guys, you need to understand these are violent offenders. These are guys that probably lift weights every single day. They were sent to this maximum security prison for violent crimes up to and including murder. And these are theoretically some of the overall roughest and most dangerous people that batman can possibly face and he takes them all on by himself and the the internal it's not even an internal monologue i don't know why i keep saying that but i guess the descriptive monologue says it sickens him to remember one of these ripped his mother and father from him in a flash a second over nothing he remembers he can't forget Criminals. Criminals did this. Somewhere, a little boy weeps in grief and terror, afraid he'll be the next to die. But the boy died years ago. He's Batman. 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 And alone. Always alone. And they should be scared. And again, it's almost but not quite over the top here. You know, it's a little flowery, but like I say, I mean, there's there's truth, but not necessarily real, uh, literal fact to this. You know, it's just effective, is what I'm saying. You know, when I was reading this as a kid, it was kind of hard to. It was at once easy, easier and harder to get into aspects of the uh, of the writing here because of the fact that. Nobody, nobody thinks in these types of terms. Nobody has this kind of internal voice. But you can buy it because, hey, fucking, it's Batman. And he, in some sense, is what he pretends to be here, you know? Anyway, so a big gang of other inmates uh, track Stone down and chase after him. So he retreats to all things to the death chamber. You know the gas chamber. Now, you could say that he really didn't have any other any other avenue of escape, but the other way of looking at it is again he, this is Batman tapping into their superstition. You know their their instinctive fear. They went to uh, he, he goes to uh, the gas station to make his stand there, and then he whips a smoke bomb out of his pocket and or out of his ass, just whichever of those works better for you, drops it on the ground, and the fact that they're in a gas chamber setting off a smoke bomb there basically is pushing the right buttons. I mean, rationally, they shouldn't be afraid because he's not going to set off poison gas in there because it's going to kill him too. They should know that on a rational level, but again superstition and instinct take over here the irrationality in their thinking takes over and they run away in terror so the smoke envelops stone in the prisoner's guard uniform and batman swoops out of it and starts kicking everything that even remotely resembles an ass in the room beating the shit out of these guys and vince even makes eye contact with him at one and says batman you're not supposed to be here. We're supposed to be safe from you here. And it just kind of speaks to Batman basically wiping his ass with the rule book that these guys aren't safe anywhere. And if if the criminal underworld in Gotham City wasn't scared shitless of Batman already, make no mistake, they are now, you know? And he's just beating the shit out of these people. And they have now an entirely new array of reasons to have irrational fears about what Batman is and is not capable of. You know, if they, if he can get to them inside prison, then there truly is no escape. And the art on page 11 is just so, uh, this is just such good stuff. You know, I mean, Mike Zek doesn't exactly knock himself out here with showing Batman doing all kinds of, you know, cool martial arts moves. He throws a bunch of people around and he punches one guy in the face. But it's really more about the mood that gets evoked by this art, you know, and the expressiveness of it all. It's not really, I mean, it's probably animation friendly, I guess, as far as line styles are concerned. But it's it's not really cartoony as such. You know, it again, it's not realistic necessarily, but it's it's I don't know, it's not really cartoony either. It's just it's something else. And it's I, I like it. This is just really well done. On a technical level, it's just really well done. So anyway, we start getting into um this is pages twelve and thirteen where Gordon narrowly escapes getting shot to death. And then he says, hey, that guy knew about uh, Officer Stone, which I think that's a misprint. I think that should actually say Detective Stone. And honestly, I mean, that right there should have been enough to uh, put the handcuffs, so to speak, on the guilty party. You know, like the real mastermind of all of this. I mean, the fact that only one other person or really only two other people besides Gordon knew that Detective Stone was going undercover in Blackgate Prison, and it stands to reason that it wasn't Batman who leaked that information, and we can be reasonably sure Gordon didn't leak that information, so who does that leave, you know? And guys, I'm not trying to blow my own horn here or anything, but this was when I pretty much realized who the guilty party here actually is, so anyways, that's page 13. From there, Warden Chessler arrives at the prison and the riot continues inside of the prison with Batman beating everybody's ass and basically fulfilling, in a sense, every single superstition that these people have about him. And he's doing things that to them seem impossible, but you know have irrational explanation to them, but he's doing it in a way that fulfills all of their superstitions and fears and irrationalities. And it just speaks to how effective Batman is at doing what he does. There's a degree to which he's actually more effective than Superman when it comes to building a reputation, you know? Now, there are complications with that, you know, like Superman's reputation as compared to Batman's. We don't need to get into that here. But, you know, I think it would be fair to say most people might, they might actually very well assume that Batman has superpowers too, just because of the way that he does things, you know, the misdirection, the theatricality, the deceptions, the, the, The weapons that he uses, the fear that he engenders, you know, it's easy to see where these people are coming from whenever they, whenever they get scared shitless at even saying Batman's name, you know? So then on page 18, the situation gets complicated by the fact that Jack seems to have Warden uh, Chesler at gunpoint. And so now what's going to happen, Right. And so we get to the scene where Batman is unmasked as Detective Stone and on the one hand it's this has got to be I guess I guess reassuring to a lot of these to a lot of these inmates that no he really is just a man and in fact he's a cop but then what we see like nearer the end of the story is that no these guys actually now have totally new reasons to think that Batman is something other than human, you know? He may be superhuman, he may be a monster, he may be a demon, a ghost, whatever, but they now have new reasons to think, you know, we don't know as much about Batman as we thought we did for a second there, you know? So, anyway, Batman swings into action and takes uh, Jack down, or at least gets attacked by Jack. Actually, like, you know what? I'm gonna have to revisit what I said uh, about the cover because right here on page 21, there is a moment where Lou Jack has his chain wrapped around Batman's neck, so it's not it's not a a complete fulfillment of what we saw on the cover, but you know, good enough for union work, I guess. This is actually fairly similar. I mean, Batman wins the fight; he takes Lou Jack down in pretty short order, but there is a moment there, yeah, where the cover does find a type of fulfillment. So, anyway. (sighs) From there, we kind of get the falling action where uh, Crown, once again, saves Batman's life. And that seems to be a recurring element of this story, where Crown saves Batman, Batman saves Crown, Crown saves Batman, Batman saves Crown, so on and so forth. And... It's it's just kind of interesting that one of the things that Batman keeps thinking to, them, to himself is, criminals, they're all the same, fuck them, blah, 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 you know? And what he's not acknowledging in this story, and this only, honestly, this only just now occurred to me, what he's not acknowledging in this story is the fact that a criminal has, has saved his life once, and now twice, and so maybe they're not all the same, you know? Anyway... That's kind of interesting, actually. Anyway, well, whatever. So that's that stuff. Now, moving into page 23 and then going on from there, Gordon and uh, a bunch of cops, not prison guards, you understand, we're talking about like actual cops now, arrive on the scene and they're basically to arrest a lot of motherfuckers. And one of them is, is Warden Tressler or Chessler, I should say, who tries talking his way out of this. He says, I know Stone is your precious Batman. A deal would keep that our little secret. And then Gordon replies, Stone? There's no stone on the Gotham police force. Move. And it just kind of, it again, it it now builds up Batman's rep. Now among Warden Chessler, it's like, who the hell is this guy then? You know, he's once again back to being a mystery. And now, if Batman isn't Officer Stone, we're, you're right back to thinking he may not actually be human, you know, or he may be something other than human. It's possible, and the ambiguity there is clearly what makes what makes it all work, you know, the fact that Batman can do he can do normal things, but what looks to be a, an extraordinary maybe even superhuman type of way and that's what makes the difference here you know and it's just really well done really well i love it you know and that's basically the end of the story but it just it works for me i just dig this story it's this is actually one of my favorite stories one of my favorite batman stories because of the fact that It doesn't didactically explain how the criminal underworld views Batman. It exemplifies it. It illustrates it. But it doesn't give you, I guess, the nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes, behind the scenes type of answer. You know what I'm saying? It, it shows you, but it doesn't really tell you. You know, And I think the trap a lot of writers fall into is that they tell you and don't show you. Or they just tell you, you know? and rather they tell you and they do show you or they just tell you and hope that's good enough. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, the effectiveness of the fear and paranoia that Batman creates, it's better shown than said, you know? To put it into words at all. There's an argument out there that language of any kind is is useful for describing ideas, you know, for uh, devising labels and things like that. But it falls short of explaining more intangible things like feelings, because of the fact that feelings, by virtue of what they are, defy words. You know, you can't really put some things into words. And so by showing it, We all inherently understand the value of it, the meaning of it, even if we can't necessarily articulate it. And what I like about this story is the fact that Stephen Grant never even attempts to to articulate it. You know, he describes the effects, but he doesn't even attempt to explain the cause. And that is why I think this is so effective. You know, yeah, it does go, or at least it comes close to going, sort of over the top, at least in places. But the payoff is that, you know, you're seeing it rather than having it explained to you. And so in a weird kind of way, it sets up this sort of interpretive paradigm to where you can explain, or at least interpret the cause to be whatever you want it to be. And all you have to do is just basically accept the premise that the Gotham City underworld is scared shitless about the Batman, you know? That's why it works, at least for me. So, now, I said earlier that you can't really escape, uh, I guess, what was happening in your personal life at the time that, you know, you were reading certain of these comics, and as it was for me, I no sooner finished this comic than this bully that I went to school with came to my house and basically wanted to pick a fight with me right and as it happened it was my older brother who answered the door and the stupid ass kid basically told him you know why he was here that he that he basically showed up at the house to uh uh, kick my ass and it's like what did you think was going to happen if you say that to my older brother guy you know what you think he's just going to step aside and let you do it you know And there was no fight that day, praise God, because if that guy had fought my older brother, talk about an unfair fight. If he'd fought me, again, unfair fight, because I'd been in a fight the day before. And so, you know, for those of you who've never been in a fight, just imagine, you know, you're all chewed up and sore and stuff because, you know, you were fucking fighting. And, you know, your knuckles are all bruised and cracked and stuff. Maybe they're still bleeding. Who knows? And... You know, you're just you're in no condition to fight anybody. You know, and so you know. And to be honest with you, that's actually one of the things about that that sort of pissed me off, was that you know you could have fought any day you wanted, you know, any day you could have had this, but you chose the moment when I'm at my most vulnerable. You know, that's when you make your move. And I was, to be honest, I, I really was actually sort of pissed off about that, but. Anyway, so, yeah, that's what happened. I no sooner finished uh, this story in Gotham, the night was his face. Name the devil in sound or silence, and the devil will answer. And the devil's name is Batman. And I no sooner finished that, you know, that little closing uh, uh, caption there, then, you know, the doorbell rings, and I knew exactly who it was, and I knew exactly what he wanted. And, you know, thank God, you know, there was no fight. You know, because sometimes in life, you know the worst thing that you can do is perpetuate the cycle of violence sometimes what you need to do is just find a way to break the cycle of violence and you know luckily that was what i was able that was what i managed to do that day but you know nevertheless you know under other circumstances who's to say what might have happened and anyway that's what i'll always think about every time i read this story like on some level apart from just how well Done. This is on a technical level. How much I enjoy this story, how it's probably in my top, maybe top ten, definitely top fifteen or twenty Batman stories ever, is the fact that when I first when I was first reading it, I no sooner finished reading this this part of it, uh, part two, uh, Legends of the Dark Knight number seventy, I I no sooner finished reading the very end of it, than somebody came to my house wanting to beat my ass, so... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so maybe you guys don't get as much of a kick out of that as, that as I do, but I think that's kind of amusing. So, anyway, so I think that is pretty much it for criminals as a story and as it happens it's also pretty much it for me this week and so as to next week I haven't really made up my mind yet what I want to talk about at the time that I record all of this I mean I'm sure as I'm when it comes time to release this stuff I'll know exactly what's coming next week but as it goes for this week I'm not really sure what I'm going to be talking about next week so I guess at this point you guys probably know more about it than I do but no matter what I think that's pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody I will see you next week
0: Sean we're here to tell you about our podcast worst collection ever
1: And this is the show where we tell you about the worst comic book collection in existence and it just happens to belong to us
0: we have some of the worst comics from the 70s 80s and 90s they're bad they don't Terrible. they're not worth anything no good why do we Very own them bad. I own number of issues of Terror Inc. and Guy Gardner.
1: Basically, we go around to local comic book stores and we buy everything we can out of dollar boxes.
0: We tell you about the weird stuff in them. We tell you about stuff that's related to them. We go into tangents. And we're very uninformed, so... Oh my
1: God, totally. But totally check out our podcast because you'll hear us just talk and joke about Marvel books and DC books from God only knows when.
0: That's right. It's our show, Worst Collection Ever, every Tuesday, On iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Download, rate, subscribe, tell a friend.
1: It'll be good and terrible, but good.
2: Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast.
4: We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So what should we talk about?
2: Something no one else is talking about. Batman.
4: (sighs) Mike. There are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one.
2: True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run.
4: Oh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run.
2: But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well.
4: And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer.
2: I think we kind of just did.
4: Yeah, but it's missing something. Like you should have added music behind us or something.
2: Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast.
4: We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So... What should we talk about?
2: Something no one else is talking about. Batman.
4: (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one.
2: True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Duke Mench run.
2: But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well.
4: And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index
2: index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website www.overlookeddarknight.com launch in May of 2017 from the Fortress of Bailey-Tune Podcasting Network.
1: And Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network hosted by Ryan Daly
0: and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusader's adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400. Legends. Mike Barr and Alan Davis.
1: Batman Year One.
0: Batman Year Two.
1: Max Allen Collins. Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd. Ugh. Uh, Millennium?
0: You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family.
1: Batman Year 3.
0: A Lonely Place of Dying.
1: Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of
0: Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989.
1: Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that?
0: You'll have to tune in
1: to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network.
0: Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com.
1: Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson.
0: You want to find another co-host?
3: which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trenismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested.
2: Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.
0: If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So
2: you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two.
0: If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks?
2: If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious,
3: hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18.